morning, I want to talk to you about a subject. Before I actually talk about that subject, I want to begin in prayer. Lord, we do come here this morning just weak and needy people. We don't claim, or at least I don't claim to be where I'm supposed to be, but I praise God that I'm not what I used to be. And I thank you, that God, that I'm progressively being sanctified. More like Jesus as every day goes by. Less like Ben. And I pray, God, that you would birth your life within those who have willing hearts. And I pray, God, for this word that goes out this morning, that it would not be misunderstood, but it would be understood within, with the heart that you intend. And so, God, give me your grace. Open their ears. And God, I recognize that I'm a mere man, and I need your power. I need your anointing. And so, God, would you speak? I pray, God, even as the children of Israel of old applied the blood of your the lamb upon the doorposts and the lentils. God, I ask that you apply the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, upon this house right now. And I pray that you would bind the work of the devil and cast him out. And I pray there'd be a clarity and a conviction. And this would make sense, what I'm going to try to say. Let it be you who are the teacher. You said in your word, call no man the teacher but the Christ. And so, Lord, we ask for you to teach. Speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I wanted to talk about the subject of why I don't like the grace of God. And before you get your heresy hairs lifted up on the back of your neck and start pulling out your stones, I do want to talk about this grace of God and why I don't like it. You see, it's probably, the grace of God is probably one of the most misunderstood concepts in all the Bible. When I was in Bible college, they gave us the definition of grace as being God's unmerited favor to the infinitely ill-deserving. And at first I heard that definition and it confused me. I didn't understand. I wrote it down. I memorized it, but I didn't understand it. The years go by. And soon enough, I begin to understand it. I begin to understand that, yes, okay, grace is God's unmerited favor. That is, I don't deserve anything he's given me. He's given it to infinitely ill-deserving people. I get it, but still I didn't get it. Because if you stop and think about it, that definition doesn't actually make sense. Because the definition itself is telling you the method and the means by which that grace is given, but it doesn't define the grace itself, if you think about it. Let me give you an example. Let's say here Luke is leading us worship here this morning, and I look at Luke and I say, you know what, I'm going to give something to Luke. And so I go out and I buy him a brand new iMac, and I put it inside a great big box, put a bow on top, and I said, Luke, here, I want to give this to you. And he opens it up and says, no way. In iMac, I never deserved this. I didn't do anything. Thank you so much. And he's just, oh, this is wonderful. And he closes the box. And then you come up to Luke and you say, hey, Luke, what do you have in the box? And he looks at you and I said, he says, Ben's unmerited favor to the infinitely ill-deserving. And you go, okay, that was kind of weird. Um, but what's in the box? And he says, I told you it's Ben's unmerited favor to the infinitely ill-deserving. Because I didn't deserve this computer, he gave it to me, I'm so unworthy, and he did it for me for no good reason. And I would still walk away, and you would walk away and say, but yeah, but what's in the box? You see, the problem of saying that the grace is God's unmerited favor to the infinitely ill-deserving, it describes the method by which it's given, but it doesn't describe the computer in the least. So that's the problem. Now, we also have uh, in English, we, you can see on the slide there, we have this definition of grace as being, uh, as it says here, seemingly effortless beauty and charm. They say, oh, she's so graceful. The way she walks, the way he moves, the way he is, he's a man of grace. 
or a characteristic or a quality pleasing for its charm and refinement. That man has tremendous graces. That woman is so graceful. And so when we come to it and we look at this word grace and we apply it from our English context, we begin to say, well, grace is something that is something inherent within the person, supposedly, an expression of the beauty of who, in fact, we are. It's my graces. And now, all of a sudden, if we apply that definition to the biblical context, the men who are experiencing the most graces could be just men who have the natural temperament of being a nice guy. And you're born with your temperament. It's not necessarily, necessarily a sign of God's divine hand upon your life. So the guy that is becoming our pastor, let's say, also qualifies to be the school president and also qualifies to be our bestest of friends, besties, because he's full of grace. So we've got a problem. I've got a problem, maybe. Maybe you don't. And then thirdly, we come into our Christian culture. And in the Christian culture, we've somewhat defined grace as this. And wouldn't you agree with this? This is the way we've defined grace in Christendom. Grace is God overlooking sin. So whenever we as though God's somehow blind or something like that. So whenever we look at the scripture and we read grace, all we hear is, you know, God's overlooking my sin. Now, does God overlook sin? That's a whole other issue. That would be something more to do with mercy. But that's what we read when we hear grace. God, you know, oh, I'm just a sinner. I just need more grace. Well, no, you need mercy and you need grace not to continue in sin, according to Romans 6. You need grace to teach you how to deny that ungodliness. But that's a whole other subject. So what I'm saying is, is that we've got all these notions and, and feelings we come into the Scripture. You know what's the danger about worshiping worship? Is that you can bring into the whole context of your relationship to God, you're, whoa, whoa Nelly, I've got it. G. Campbell Morgan in his famous book on preaching, remember G. Campbell Morgan, the great English preacher? He said, be careful about playing on people's emotions. Number one rule in church. Be careful about playing on emotions. So all of a sudden, we look at these different definitions that are going on, and we say, wait a second, what is this grace? And so two of the definitions are wrong. One of them is right, but it doesn't help us understand what, in fact, this grace is. You see, when I talk about the grace versus mercy, oh yeah, God deals with sin, but that's, as I said, mercy. Remember the book of Judas says, now unto him who is able to what? to keep us from falling. You, you, know what, you know what grace is? Let, let's say I'm sitting there on the edge of a cliff, and I'm holding on the edge of the cliff, and I'm not ready to fall. And I'm sitting back, and I'm saying, oh, I'm going to fall, I'm going to fall. I want to experience grace, not mercy. You want to know why? Because grace is him reaching over and pulling me up. Mercy is I slip. <laughs> and mercy is there for him who has fallen and the ambulance comes in and cleans up the mess sometimes you don't recover from those falls sometimes oftentimes you have breaks and wounds in your body that need mending and you'll never get over that scar across your chest you never will and there's mercy we'd be foolish though to jump off of cliffs and say don't worry god's mercy is here for me kapoosh I love God's mercy. Kaboosh! <laughs> I love it. Look at this scar. This is the time I rebelled and got blasted. Kaboosh! But now unto him who is able to keep us from calling, falling. The whole book of Jude is about grace. And God is able to give us something to resource to bring us up onto solid ground. This is grace. 
And if I fall and splat, there's a whole different theological issue. Mercy, a theological fact. But you see, this grace, I don't know about you. One of the things we do in the Bible college is we try to define things biblically. I know that's crazy. And in order to do that, you have to know the Bible, which is a rarity in the pulpit anymore. You have to know the Bible, but then you also have to know the Spirit of God because you have to see outside of the confusion that the culture is pumping through mass media into our heads in the Christian culture. So the mass media of the Christian culture is telling us all these things, what these words mean, but do we actually know these words? We spend a tremendous amount of time at the school going through and defining these words, righteousness and grace and truth and justice and all these things, holiness, all these words. And then one of the students told me, he said, I went back and read the book of Romans. It made sense for the first time in my life. It was a confusing book my entire life, and now it makes sense. Why? Because we actually define the words biblically. And the problem we're facing is we're defining the biblical concepts culturally, and then we're not really understanding the word, and then we try to apply the word that we've misunderstood, but we're applying it wrong because we don't understand it, and then there's no power in it, and then we say, oh, well, it's just the way it is, so we have to live in sin. Well, you see, the Bible actually tells us what grace is. In Titus, in chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. What does this grace of God do? Should we sin more, Paul said, so we can have more grace? He says, God forbid, you're missing the whole point of grace. Because he says the grace of God is actually there to teach us how to deny ungodliness. Have you experienced this grace? Have you experienced the grace that is able to keep you from falling? Now unto him, listen, there is a power greater than your sin. Sin leads to death. And Jesus conquered death. It's called resurrection life. Life conquers death. The resurrection life of Jesus Christ conquers death. And it's the life of God We are partakers of his divine nature, if in fact we are, and it's the life of God within the soul of man that gives man victory over sin and death. So that although the sin nature will forever remain within me, it's no longer my master because I have a new master, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I yield to him, I find his power ruling over, just like the law of aerodynamics rules over the law of gravity. The law of aerodynamics does not destroy the law of gravity. The law of gravity is forever there. The law of sin and death is always there. But there's another law more powerful, the law of the spirit of life, the law of aerodynamics, and it rules over the law of sin and death. And the resurrection life of Jesus Christ is the answer to the dilemma of man. This is the grace of God. And he tells us the grace of God is a teacher. It's a teacher. And there it is. It's something to be engaged. This grace of God. And that's why he tells us in Romans chapter 6. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought back from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. What is Paul saying? What's the new covenant? Sometimes people, what is the, ask yourselves in the mind, what is the new covenant? You know what we think in our culture? Well, the old covenant is you brought animals and sacrificed for your sins. The new covenant, Jesus sacrifices for the sins. Well, it's true, but that's not the new covenant. Because if that's the new covenant, the gospel is just Jesus died for your sins. 
Is the new covenant Jesus died for your sins? Well, it's part of it, but if that's all it is, it's an incomplete gospel. It's a false gospel. That's why some churches, you'll see, we preach the full gospel. They're not being arrogant. What they're saying is, we preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The full gospel. They don't teach, well, Jesus died on the cross. He did. But he rose again. He has power over death and sin that leads to death. He has the resurrection life of God. And so what is the new covenant? Again, not the old covenant where it says, well, in the old covenant, animals died for you. In the new covenant, Jesus dies for you. Boop, boop, boop. No. What is the new covenant? Romans six fourteen. for sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. There's the new covenant. You see, we don't understand the word the way it ought to be understood. We've injected meanings that aren't there. Now, weigh this against the false teacher. Sometimes we think a false teacher is someone that has a Van Dyke, carries a pitchfork, wears black spandex, and looks like Darth Maul. We think, well, that guy's a false teacher. How do you know? Look at him. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 11, it says, Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Translation, the false teachers... He says, so likewise, his ministers transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. Translation, his teachers look like nice guys. And they'll love you into hell. Is the emphasis of our message on God's love? Well, God does love us. But the theologians talk about holy love. It's a world of difference. I don't have time to go into that into detail. It's the holy love of God. But our culture says, oh, God loves. Well, love is like the blob of the 1970 movies. Remember the 1970 movies, the blob? It just engulfed everything. The blob, ah! And the definition of today's love in our Christian culture is the blob. Ooh, it just engulfs everything. God does love you. And he demonstrated it in the sacrifice of himself so that you can be a new sort of person. You can be a vessel for his honor, for his glory, that his life could live inside of you. But it must happen as you yield yourself to him. So the issue of confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, Romans 10, is not an issue of a verbal chant. The issue of confessing him as Lord is claiming that he is the authority of your life, thus rejecting the lie of the devil that was injected into the human race all the way back in Genesis 3, where Satan said to man, you will be God. And ever since, we've been trying to prove that that's true. And Jesus comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords, and he says, no, I alone am God. And it's only as you yield yourself to me that you will have the power of my resurrection life in you. And if you live your own life, submitted unto your own means, you will forever walk and live in this sin and death dominating you. But as you yield to this Lord, even though you retain a sin nature, you will have the authority of this Christ ruling over you. Have you heard this gospel? And you see, sin is not to be my master. Sin, I, why? Because I have a new master. I have a new master. Well, so he contrasts this then in the New Testament with the false teacher. And you know what the false teacher looks like? Mean and gnarly and growling and rah, rah, rah. come to my church. I mean, think it through. If you were Satan, would you really do that? Come to my church. By the way, when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, Satan's ministers transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. When it calls them Satan's ministers, it doesn't mean they're going, hey, Satan? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What should I preach this weekend? <coughs> preach this. <coughs> Roger that. <laughs> it doesn't mean that. It means they imitate him, his diakonoi. Not his douloi, 
for you Greek students. It says diakonoi. They're imitating him according to Trench. And they're copying his behaviors. What was Satan's behaviors? Lifted up in pride. I will be like God. What do the false ministers do? They lift themselves up in the spirit of the age, which is the spirit of Antichrist, which is manifest to us in 2 Thessalonians 2, where the devil himself will say, I am God through a man. Where the culture begins to say, I am God, believing the lie of Genesis 3. And the Christian, under discipline, must make a choice, a volitional choice to say, no, there's one Lord, there's one King, there's one God. Every knee will bow at his throne, and therefore the decisions of my life are yielded unto his authority because I've been bought with a price. I do not belong to myself. I must honor God with my body. Well, there's a Christian message. So what did the false teacher look like? Jude tells us. In contrast to the grace of God in Titus 2.11 that teaches us how to deny ungodliness, look what the false teacher teaches. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that is once for all entrusted to the saints. By the way, does the faith change? Does the culture change? Which one are you? Are you going to stand on the everlasting rock that changeth not? He said, certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. By the way, if they secretly slipped in, are you aware of it? Okay. They are godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and denied Jesus Christ and our only sovereign Lord. What do they do? Two things. The same thing Peter says in 2 Peter 2. They, they changed the grace of our God into license to sin. In other words, grace is there for us to live under the dominion of sin. How many people enjoy sin? For a moment, you do. And then later, you hate it. Sin is fun, otherwise you wouldn't do it. But you pay the price. And it hurts. It hurt real good. (laughs) He says, the false teacher comes in and uses the grace of God, which is there to free you from the dominion of the sin, and they take it as a means for you to continue the lifestyle in sin. Oh, well, we're just all sinners. That's the false teacher. Number two, they deny the Lord who bought them. Now think this through. If I'm a preacher, and indeed I am, am I going to convince you that God doesn't exist? I deny Jesus. Jesus doesn't exist. I deny the Lord. He doesn't exist. That's not what he's saying. Look up the word, the Greek word, deny. What it means is, I do not allow his authority into my life. So I'm in the context of a church and I deny the Lord, not saying he doesn't exist, but I deny his authority in my life, I live as though I am God, though with my mouth I say he is. Two things. Number one, Titus says the grace of God teaches us how to deny godliness. The grace, the false grace, he says, it teaches you how to sin, and it teaches you how to be God. This make sense? I shake my head and I I listen to the preaching that's going across our country. And I'm saying, we're going to hell in a handbasket. And we all feel good about it. You see, the same thing that was the the condemnation that Jude spoke about is the same thing Moses talked about in Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy 13. He says, if you hear it said about one of the towns of the Lord your God is giving to you to live in, that wicked men have arisen among you. They rise among you. And have led the people in their town saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods you have not known, then you must inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly. Be a Berean. 
And if it is true, and it has been proved that it is detestable thing has been done among you, you must certainly put to the sword all that live in the town, destroy it completely, both its people and its livestock. Why? Because it'll spread like gangrene. Destroy it. Wipe it out. Why? It'll lead you to hell. And so I hope we understand that idolatry and other gods, idolatry is worshiping false gods or it's worshiping the true and the living God in false ways. They that worship him, John chapter 4, must worship him in spirit and in truth. And they're leading you away. They turn the grace of our God into license to sin. They're false men. They're condemned from the foundation of the world. It's something that's spoken from the, the law all the way to the new covenant. Because it's always amongst us. And always will be. But in the last days, the Bible tells us it's going to be rampant. And people are going to call bitter sweet and sweet bitter. They're going to call good bad and bad good. And it, he's not talking about in the culture, although it's true in the culture, he's talking about the church. And the Bible talks about the great falling away from the church. Not the great falling away from, from going to church, but the great falling away from the faith is what Jude said. Do you base the relationship you have with God based upon sensual wisdom, which is demonic of the devil, James chapter 3? God is here. How do you know? I see it. I feel it. <laughs> you're living according to sensual wisdom, and you're confusing that it's spiritual guidance of God. And the sum effect of those contexts isn't to lead you to holiness and righteousness in the Lord. The sum effect of those contexts is to lead you into a lifestyle of sin. Therefore, you of necessity need a deeper, deeper, more awesome, intense thing on Sunday morning to make sure that you're born again again. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Thus says the Lord. I'm not joking. Be careful. It is very real. And it's very here. Well, Paul opens his letters by saying grace and peace. Grace and peace. You find this all over in the New Testament. Paul, Romans, you know, grace and peace to you from the God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace. All the way through all these letters, you find Paul saying grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. And some people have thought and suggested that this is kind of a, uh, the reason he puts grace in peace is because he's speaking to the Hebrew culture, which their way of greeting people, even today, you know, shalom, which means peace, their way of greeting people is shalom, and the Greek way of greeting people was grace, and therefore Paul was accommodating both the Greeks and the Jews within the church by greeting them together, grace and peace. Well, that's true that they use shalom and grace, but why is it always in this pattern? Why, is it ever, why isn't it ever peace and grace for this reason? It is very deliberate. I believe every word is illumined by the Holy Spirit. And when he comes in and says grace and peace to you, it's a divine order. Why? What does this mean? Simply this. Hear this, friend. And you are a friend. If you're being convicted, this is love. This is love. You will never know the peace of God until you know the grace of God. You will never know the peace of God until you know the grace of God. And you see, the fact is, God put this in this order to get our attention. I need to know the peace of God. Yes, how? I need to know the grace of God. So the question is, what's the grace of God if I'm to know the peace of God? But before that, what is the peace of God? Well, what is peace? Peace is the cessation of conflict, right? It's a subtleness of heart. It's a sense that you're not missing something or losing something. Unrest is because you don't have what you think you're supposed to have. 
Doesn't James talk about that in James chapter 4? He says basically you war and fight with each other because you don't have what you want and you don't get it. So what's the whole issue? I'm at unrest because I don't have something. Right? So I fight with people to get what I want. But the opposite is true then. I will be at rest if I have something. Right? The lack of peace, the war that's within me is because I want something and I don't have it. But the peace would be because I have what I want. But what's the problem? The whole culture is telling us all the time, it's called television and radio and internet, that we need something to make us happy. Remember my father years ago when he was a young Christian wrote a song, and you'll have to convince him one of these days to sing it, although his voice is somewhat gone. (laughs) Still got a great voice, but not as good as it was. And the song was, nothing ever satisfied me until I met you. That was the tune in it. Nothing ever satisfied me. Was it Mick Jagger saying, I can't get no satisfaction? It's Jesus in John chapter 4 saying, if you drink of this water, you'll be thirsty again. And that's true of every physical experience of your life. If you drink of this water, you'll be thirsty again. You're saying, this thing will give me peace because peace is the cessation of having something. I don't have it, so I fight with people to get what I want so I can have peace. And then I eat of this thing and I say, well, this person is going to satisfy this deep hunger in my soul. And they don't, and then you hate them. You failed me. What? I'm just a person. And you're placing expectations upon other people to satisfy this desire within your heart. That's why relationships keep breaking. You're looking, looking for love in all the wrong places. Or as Buckwheat said, nook and nub in all the wrong places. <laughs> If you drink of this water, you'll be thirsty again. So the whole issue of peace, according to James, would have to do with the issue of having something that I want, but then it introduces the problem of introducing into myself the wrong thing that I want. And Jesus said, if you drink of this water, you'll be thirsty again. You see, what's the real issue with us? What we want is God. Isn't it Augustine that says, my soul finds no rest until it finds its rest in thee? Do we believe that? Are we eating everything else? You know, it's like if you have a a, a dietary issue and what you need is spinach, and you're going, I know I'm supposed to eat spinach. And then there's cotton candy and bologna and processed meats all over the place, and carrots, whatever else, even good things. And you're saying, I know I'm supposed to eat spinach, but do you really believe knowing that you're supposed to eat spinach is the same thing as eating spinach? But you're going to the carrots and and the bologna and the processed meat and shoving it down your throat and saying, oh, I can quote the verse. I need spinach. And you get your badge and Awana award for for quoting a verse. (laughs) Eat the spinach. That's what I'm impressed with. Not the fact that you can tell me you're supposed to eat spinach. (laughs) Eat it. I think there's a song about that from Weirdal Yankovic. (laughs) Just eat it. (laughs) So the fact is, is that we need to partake of this divine nature. And what's the problem inside of us is that God is what we need. For real, not the pretend Jesus that leads us bankrupt and every week we need a pump up to make us sure that we know him, but in fact we don't because there's no translation of that life Monday through Saturday. But I need a Christianity that's real. People ask me, they say, what's the difference between your church and other churches? People always ask these questions of pastors. I said, what I hope is that our church is, it li- is at church, it's different from Monday to Saturday. And it's not just Sunday. Sunday is the collection of the people that have been warring to be a servant of the living God, 
to present their body as a living sacrifice to the Lord. For real, not because they memorized it, because they're eating the spinach. And then we come together, and because if you try to do that, you're going to get beat up real good. And we encourage each other and build each other up in the faith to keep on keeping on. You see, my sin has separated me from God. And God is what I need. And the absence of something that I need is the war and grace and peace to you. I won't have that peace until I know his grace. I have to be given something, a computer, in Luke's case. I need to be given something to appreciate and to be able to use the computer. Could you imagine if I gave the computer to Luke and he just sat there and talked about it all day? Put it on a shelf. I went over to his house and it was on the mantle. He put lights on it and shining on it. Little hymn music around it, you know. You could push a button and play hymn music. It's like, going, dude, what are you doing? Use the computer. Walk in the grace that you have. I gave you something. Use it. No, 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 no. I'm not going to use it. And he's sitting there and trying to calculate out his mathematical problems all day long. But he won't turn on the computer. Just turn on the computer. Use it. No, no, no. I want to prove that I'm better than I think I am. Then your pride is keeping you from using the grace of God that you've been given. Pride is your enemy. What did he say in the next verse? Somewhere in there. Slide. Next one. There you go. I think that's the one. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities, your sins have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so he will not hear you. We think that God will hear us no matter what. It's not true. That's why we have to come in the name of Jesus. I have no right to be heard. I have no right to be heard of him. Can you just go in and talk to the Queen of England anytime you want? You have no right to be heard, and she won't listen to you. But guess what? If I know her son, if I know her son, and I come in the name of Jolly Prince Charles, <laughs> and I come on in to the throne room, and how much more, if that's true of a human dignitary, how much more is it of God? Now, this word grace in the Greek is the word charis. And charis is a word that doesn't mean anything to us. I mean, it has intonations of loving kindness and what have you, but that's the Greek word nonetheless. But we begin to understand what grace is when we relate it to another word in the Bible. It's called charisma. Charisma. And you know what charisma is? We always think of it as a person that's really excitable. Woo, he's got charisma. Well, in English, it means that. And then the charismatic movement has taken that word from us and said, listen, if you've got the charisma of the Holy Spirit, you're charismatic. That means you're weird and you flop around and you got hair swooped in great big circles. You know what happens if your hair swoops in a great big circle? You know what that's called? It's called a Hindu. <laughs> a Bini Hindu. And so, so there's the whole issue. And you're going, there's a, oh, this is charisma. Well, that's not what it means. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when it talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the word for gifts of the Holy Spirit is charisma. Charisma, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, now it's related to grace, the computer I gave to you. You follow? Charisma. So when you think about the body of Christ, why in the world are we a body of Christ? If in fact we are. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, he has given gifts, charisma, to each members of the body, not a mutual affirmation society who have yet been redeemed by the Spirit of God and kind of congregate together in, in a common setting. No, we are partakers of his divine nature because we have bowed the knee to the only and the true and the living God. He only potentate. And as we yield to him, he has given us gifts 
Because we're only about his business. I'm here on this earth for his good pleasure, Revelation 4. And as I'm here for his good pleasure, not seeking my own, because if I seek my life, I'll lose it, Jesus said. But if I lose my life for his sake and the gospel's sake, I'll find it. And as I'm living upon this earth, redeemed because I was sold into slave sin and death, and now that I've been bought again, I've been given life. And now that I've been given life, he gives me the charisma, the gifts of the Spirit, so I can now behave in accordance with his purposes upon this earth. That's where you'll find meaning. And the only way this can be done, according to 1 Corinthians 12, is we yield one to another. No pride. God orchestrated the body of Christ in such a way that it necessitated a yieldedness, a humility one to another. And as we yield in the giftedness and the sets that God has given us, we bring glory unto God. We don't bring glory to the church or to ourselves. But God alone is glorified. Take your glory, Lord. God, your name be lifted up. And Paul said to, to, in, in the, the epistles, redeem the time, Timothy, because the days are evil. In other words, evil days present a great opportunity to redeem time. This is what I need, Lord. But I'm called to an impossible task. You've called me to compute calculus equations that I can't, but I'll give you a computer. Now use it. Oh, God, you've called me to research all these types of things that I can't understand, but I've given you a computer. Use it. Use the grace that you have been given if, in fact, you've been given grace. If you've been given grace. Hmm. But you know what Isaiah said is going to happen in the last days? He tells us in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 8, just like Israel, when Israel went astray and were God's chosen people and used that privilege to advantage their own selves, the church likewise, God's people, would use that privilege to only advantage themselves. He says, here's the problem, verse 8, Isaiah 5. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. Read the whole thing. What's the problem? We begin to view our existence as being my thing, my time. Seek your life, you're going to lose it. Lose your life for my sake and the gospel's sake, you'll find it. And either God's wrong or we're wrong. And I suppose this morning we have to make a choice. Who are we going to declare is wrong? I mean, as much as we can agree intellectually that we're the ones that are wrong, as much as we can agree to that, why is it so hard to admit this? Because the issue is spiritual. It's spiritual. Now let me ask you a question. If I came up to you and I said, you know, or let's say you came up to me and let's pick on Luke again. You come up to me and say, hey, Ben, how would you describe your relationship to Luke? And I would say, it's based upon a lot of grace. What have I just said about Luke? Something you guys all know. <laughs> no, just joking. <laughs> I've just said that Luke is one of the most difficult, cantankerous people I know on the entire earth. How would you describe your relationship to Luke? It's based upon a lot of grace. And yet when God says this about us, we go, oh, thank you, Lord. How would you describe your relationship to God? It's based upon a lot of grace. Oh, thank you, Lord. I know. And we got this idea that he's a grandfatherly figure up in the heaven thinking we're so cute. <laughs> Finally got one right. And it's you. <laughs> you see, we don't think these things through. It's based upon a lot of grace. This is a rebuke to you. 
This is offensive. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. He talked about the offense of the gospel. Have you been offended yet? <laughs> then you haven't heard the gospel. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. You haven't heard it. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2. He talked about a stumbling block. Christ is a stumbling block. Why? Because we think we're all that. And all of a sudden, <laughs> we fall flat on our face. He is offensive. He removes the sensibilities that we have about ourselves because they're false. And we think that God somehow loves us because we're lovable. You're not. You're offensive to a holy God. That's why you can do your own homework. I mean, probably you can probably Google it anymore. Holy love, it's a theological term. It's a great term. I did a study on that a number of months ago. This holy love of God. Do you really want to be like you are? Do you really want to just keep on being trapped in the same stupid sins that are causing damage and you can't get out of them? Do you really want to continually look at your wife in a way that is through the lens of something that's unholy? Or do you want to be able to look upon her with purity? Do you want to, to have this life of God? Peter said in 2 Peter 1, we are partakers of the divine nature. Verse 3, I believe it is. Do I want to live in this life? You see, the grace of God is offensive. So I started the study by saying why I don't like the grace of God. Do you want to know why now? I'll tell you why. The reason I don't like the grace of God is because, that is, let me clarify, the reason my flesh doesn't like the grace of God, my sin nature doesn't like the grace of God. You want to know why? Because it's offensive to the sensibilities I have about myself. It's offensive. And you know what the second reason? I'll tell you the second reason. The necessity of grace is that I've reached my own limitation. God calls me to do something, but I can't do it. He tells me to go somewhere, but I can't go. And yet I do it, so I depend upon his grace. Remember the old acronym, grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's resources at Christ's expense. It's resources from God. It's the computer in the box. And grace is the power to compute. It's not for the power for Luke to sit on his shelf and to look at it and sing songs about it. It's not for you to look at the spinach, it's to eat it. And the grace of God is there for us to be another kind of person, to live another kind of life. As I yield myself, but the real issue is not spiritual warfare for most of us. The real issue is I won't bow my knee, and actually the only spiritual warfare I have is with God. I'm still trying to say I am God yet confessing it theologically that you are God. I mean, why do we study the deity of Jesus Christ so we can fight with Mormons? Some people think that's the reason. The reason we study the deity of Jesus Christ is so I can know how to relate to him. He's God, not me. He's the only sovereign and potentate, not me. This is the grace of God. And you've called me to do something I can't do, but I reach my own limitation. And I don't like the grace of God because it points out that I'm limited. The grace of God shows that I don't have what it takes to do what I'm called to do. I want to take the bull by the horns. Therefore, if I'm religious but unyielded, I'm attracted to the law because by the law I can control it, so I think. I can give outward observances to say that's, I fulfilled everything. I hope you understand that. I don't have time to get into it. But that's the reason. And I don't like the grace of God because it offends me. And it points out my own limitations. I, I was telling somebody here recently, I said, I'm getting tired of miracles. 
You know, most people are saying, I, I want to see a miracle. No, you don't. Because God doesn't just entertain people. I know television pretends he does, but he doesn't. God doesn't say, hey, look, I'm a magic show. Look, I pull a rabbit out of the hat. Dad, come next week and I'll blow my bad breath on you and it'll knock you out, you know, type of thing. God doesn't do this. God isn't in the entertainment business. But the miracles that I've seen is when I've reached my own limitation and I have no other resource or recourse. I say, God, I don't know what to do. And the miracle happens. And I found that if I only busy myself with what he has told me to do, I will be put in context like I've never seen over my head, but he will deliver. I, I think sometimes we read the Bible and say, I wish I could see the Red Sea parted. I wish I could see manna come down from heaven. No, you don't. Because in order to see the Red Sea parted, you got to have costly obedience to the will of God and to go to the place God told you to go and to do the thing God told you to do. And you have no ability to do it, but the only question is, God, have you ordained it? And as you do it or give it or sacrifice yourself, even in the context you're in, you will find yourself pressed against an upper limit that you don't have the ability. And therefore, they found themselves at the Red Sea with Migdal on your right, Pahiroth on their left, the Red Sea behind them and the Pharaoh's armor in front of them, and they're desperate they're going to be destroyed. And at that point in time, they had to choose to look to God in faith, and they raved the rod of God, the power of God over the water. It split, and they went across. I want to see a miracle. No, you don't. And I told somebody, I said, I'm tired of miracles. Pray for me. <laughs> I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying I've got issues. But the issue is that I'm constantly put into a place where I, I, can't, I, I don't have ability. I could tell you 50 stories. But I'm at my wit's end. I was here a few months ago, and a guy comes up to me and says, well, how's the ministry doing out there? And they're all excited. And I said, there's constantly we're in battle. He goes, oh. I said, that's a good thing. Aren't we supposed to be in battle against the enemy? And all of a sudden, we think the idea that somehow you're a servant of the Lord is, hey, everybody loves me. Didn't Jesus said, if you belong to the world as a church, the world would love you and show up in mass? Or is that just for then and not now? Doesn't the scripture tell us in the last days it's going to get very dark? And they're going to say, look what God is doing. There's going to be a false revival, a counterfeit revival, and people are going to go, man, God's moving. Yes, he left a long time ago. <laughs> He's not moving. The glory is unto man. It's not unto God. And if the glory is only unto God, I don't have to tell you it's not about me. It's only about him. It's not about our church. Our number one prayer and standpoint is God never let this church be about our church. Because all power, glory, honor, and dominion only and always forever belongs to him. <laughs> and by the way, that's the only way to make it safe. As wrote down in our prayer meeting, we have a two and a half hour prayer meeting. This last week we had this gal shows up, she's demon possessed, she starts freaking out on us and screaming and like in the gospels, shaking all over the place and I didn't react. Waited for it to calm down. <laughs> that I bind you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. I didn't yell. I'm not like devil deaf or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but to cast out darkness, you've got to walk in purity. And if I'm living in pornography, I have no power for those things. But if I'm walking in righteousness only by the grace of God, I have power over devils. The reason we don't see this happening is because we walk in impurity. God has so much more for us. 
He has so much more. He wants to use my life to do something that I could never do by myself, to become someone I could never be by myself. But it, it discipline of the Christian, and I have to reach out for his grace. I need your grace. I think of God, and I wrote this down in our prayer meeting, you call us to jobs that we don't necessarily want, that we don't necessarily want to do, but that's where the grace of God is. I don't want to do this, Lord. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross, did he? David wasn't going, yeah, I'm looking for a fight today. I want to go out and slay a giant. He says, no, I'm in the requiring moment. There's no one else to do it. You defy the armies of the living God. And he goes out and throws the stone and it sinks deep into his forehead. Gideon is in the cave threshing his wheat. How do you thresh wheat without, without wind? You're in a cave. You're supposed to be on the hilltop. And the passage tells us he's afraid of the Midianites. So he's trying to thresh his wheat inside of the cave. He's a coward. And God appears to him and he says, Gideon, go in the strength that you have. And Gideon says, I'm the weakest of all my clan. I'm the smallest of my family. And then God said, I am your strength. David says, the Lord, the Lord is my strength. He never said, God, give me strength so we can remain in control. He said, Lord, you alone are my strength. It's out of surrender to you. Remember the old song, be thou my wisdom, O Lord of my life? He's not saying, God, give me wisdom so I can remain in control. He's saying, Lord, you in fact are my wisdom. Lord, you are my rock. I'm not saying, give me a rock to stand on, Lord. Lord, you are my rock. You are my strength. You are my wisdom. God, I need this in my life. I think of poor old Princess Leia. Help me, Obi-Wan. You're my only hope. <laughs> Lord, you're my only hope. I told a gal in the church, I said, we're having all these people show up, and we're being so affected with these people but we're only effective with them when they're broke. The problem is when they come to the church, they're broke. <laughs> but that's the place where God begins to move. And then he makes all the people with monetary means jealous. Not all of them, some of them do serve the Lord. You see, I don't like this, this kind of grace. It offends me. It points out my limitations. And it requires faith. Isn't that what Paul said in Ephesians 2? Look at this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. I want to live by sight. How about you? That's my flesh wants. My flesh wants to live by sight. I don't want to have to believe God. I want to see everything he's doing before I obey him. He says, no, you believe what I said, my word, and then you'll see. You say, God, give me peace, and then I'll obey you. He says, no, you obey me, and I'll give you peace. Give me fruit, then I'll abide. No, you abide in the vine, then you'll produce fruit. Which one do we want, really? I don't like grace, because we're saved by grace through faith. And I want to see things. And he says, trust me. And then what does he say later on in verse 10? Because we were created in God's, as God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We got a gospel anymore that he died for you so you can go to heaven. How does that jive with Ephesians 2.10? Going to heaven is a fringe benefit. He created us unto good works. So as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, men would look at your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. He created us to represent the character of God upon the earth and the way we behave. And if people are glorifying our Father in heaven and we did the works, why don't they glorify us? Because it's not you doing it, it's Father doing it in you. It's His grace. Amen. And as you yield to Him, His life is lived through you. And the Bible's all about this. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Much to say about that, I don't have time. 
In James chapter 2, he tells us, you say you have faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my works. Faith without works is dead. You want to see the evidence of faith? It'll live out. You don't live out to get born again. But now that you've been born again, you must live out because you were created in Christ Jesus unto good works. He gave you the computer so you can use it now. Oh God, I can't compute. I gave you a computer. Use it. I gave you the grace. I'm speeding up and skipping a a couple of points here. But let let, let let me wind this down. Let me say this. There's a lot of reasons my flesh doesn't like grace. But for the man who has died in Christ, who has crucified his flesh, grace is our only hope. For by the grace of God, I can be something I could never be on my own, to do something I could never do on my own. But it requires a faith. I must go into the unknown, trusting God's voice, not what I see. It rebukes my inability. It exposes my limitations. And therefore, someone that's truly walking by grace, not by the English definition of grace, of human niceties, but a one who is truly walking by grace will only give glory to God, but the one who's walking by human niceties will take the glory to himself. And God, here's the issue. Remember Noah? The parents just got back and they, they visited Noah's Ark. They're in, what is it, Kansas? They sent me pictures. And when Noah sent out the dove, it flew back. And what did Noah do? What is the dove a picture? Of the Holy Spirit. Remember the Holy Spirit descended upon Christ like a dove. He reaches out his hands for the dove. And there's the picture, friend. If you want the grace of God, not to continue to live in sin, but to teach you how to deny ungodliness. Not to be part of this world, but to be separate from the world. He reached out his hands. There's a sense that you have to be desperate for this dove to land on you. God, please fill me with your Holy Spirit. And if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Spirit to to those who would long for him? And listen, before you can receive the Spirit, you must be born again, not culturalized into Christianity, but born again of the Spirit. The Spirit of God has to descend upon my life like a dove. Remember the old word for today with Chuck Smith? Evie Turnquist singing that song, the intro song to his program. Oh, let the Son of God... I won't sing anymore. (laughs) I was singing falsetto. And let the Spirit descend upon our lives like a dove, or some, some words like that. I'd have to sing it to remember the words, and you don't want that. <laughs> let the Spirit descend upon my life. Lord, I need your Spirit to descend upon my life. And the only way that you're going to get this sin out of you is it's going to start by confession, if you confess your sins. It's you agreeing with God your inadequacy, but depending upon his adequacy to be another kind of man so that men would look at you and glorify their Father in heaven. Does this make sense? Amen. God, I pray for this grace. And Lord, I pray for those that they would accept the rebuke of grace so that they could fall in deeper love with you. Guard our hearts and forgive us of our sins. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.